Welcome to Come Queens, the pussy positive podcast challenging cultural norms around our bodies, our sexuality, and our pleasure so that we can smash the fucking patriarchy one conversation at a time. I'm Grace. And I'm Charlotte. And on this week's episode, we interview Donna Freitas, the author of Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention, in which she bravely shares her personal story of being stalked by her trusted mentor and the challenges of overcoming this violation. Donna also speaks at colleges and universities around the country about consent. This interview will be in two parts, so be sure to stay tuned for the conclusion next week. We discuss the ways in which we can empower ourselves and how things have changed and stayed the same in the time of the Me Too movement. Please be aware that this episode does contain discussions of sexual harassment and abuse. We are so grateful to Donna for taking the time to talk with us and share her story. I guess just getting started, could you maybe give us a little synopsis of, you know, the background of what your book is about, Consent? Well, it's, uh, so my memoir takes place uh, really throughout my graduate experience. Um, I was in my early 20s, and uh, it's it's about, I would say it's about two things, Um one, I was a really voracious student and reader, and I I really wanted my PhD, and I felt like that was my life's purpose. Like, this is who I was meant to be. I was going to be a professor. I wanted to write, like, theoretical books like Lucy Rigore and, and, and people like that. And um, so I, you know, I went to graduate school, and I really loved it. Um, and my very first semester I took a professor's class. Um, it was a required class and, uh, I thought he was really brilliant and he was, um, really kind to me and was willing to meet with me and answer all of my questions. And I came in as a student who was really accustomed to, going to see my professors like on a weekly basis. Um, that was something I did when I was an undergrad and it was something I really loved about my academic life. And so, um, so it was just what I did. And, uh, so I thought, of course, this is wonderful. Here's another professor that I can get to know and who's going to be a mentor. And, um, over the course of that year, his interest in me seemed to shift and, um, I began to become uncomfortable with it. And the memoir is really about in many ways, how, um, how that relationship with that professor shifted from one that I wanted to one that I really did not want. And so one of the things I wanted to do when I wrote that book was, almost analyze or trace like where, where did my consent become withdrawn? Like, when did I withdraw it? How did I do it? Why could he not hear me when I did? And so I was interested in that shift between, um, how, how does, how do we withdraw consent when we're in a consensual relationship with someone, which in my case was just, um, a professor student one. You, when you talk about the idea of consent, you kind of express it in a way where you're saying that you're saying yes until you say no, right? That 
um, in some well, ways. I'm- not saying yes to to abuse or harassment, but I'm saying saying yes to being in relationship mm-hmm. when you have like we we operate in the world in a way that we are giving consent as we walk through our lives until mm-hmm. we revoke consent, and that's sort of the way that sexual harassment seems like it's like it's portrayed like that that it's our responsibility to say right. no, yeah, I and guess. you have to be so firm in your no, <laughs> but. I mean, we are kind of, I wrote a little bit about how it's like we're in a state of perpetual consent, you know, like we're, you know, we're, we are, we're walking around the world and we're um, walking into stores and we're interacting with people and, you know, until we put up our hand or like walk away or, you know, there's a way in which we're, we're agreeing to be in the presence of other people or be in relation to them. And, uh, because I mean, ideally we're not in a state of animosity with the rest of the world. (laughs) So, um, but I, I think, especially with casual interactions or just every everyday interactions like you would have with a coworker or with with a teacher or you know places you have to be with other students who are around you that you may not know but you just see all the time generally you're not you're not really thinking about those relationships you're just in them and so until something uh exceptional happens or until something upsets you you know you you generally don't worry about them and you know, I, I, that's ideally how, how life should be, except of course, you know, sometimes we end up in situations where we start to become uncomfortable and then we realize, um, oh, I I don't, I don't like this anymore, but especially in those relationships, um, that are, you know, that are required in our lives. Like for example, in the classroom with a teacher or with a student, uh, it's, really tricky or with a boss and, you know, an employee, it's really tricky to navigate your way through, um, withdrawing your consent or, or just getting out of that situation. So, and it seems to me though, that the prevailing wisdom is that I'm supposed to say no to somebody who's doing something unwanted, but I get frustrated because I just think, isn't it obvious that you shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. things that are not appropriate, you know? And so where do you think that that balance lies um, in terms of responsibility? Well, I know as a professor or sometime professor now, I try to teach as much as I can. Um, It's on me, you know? I I mean, it's as as a professor um, or as a mentor, it's on me to be aware of what kind of power I have in relation to someone. And, you know, I, I really love my students. For example, I'm working with a whole bunch of grad students right now. We're, we're all trying to work through the situation we're in. And, you know, I, I, one of the things I've realized I have enjoyed, um, which is sort of, I was like, okay, well, this is the silver lining of what's happening in terms of having my entire university go online. Like I've been having Skype sessions with my students one-on-one and, it's been really fun. Like we've laughed. I've, you know, they've, one of them introduced me to her stuffed animals <laughs> and like, <laughs> we've just been having these like funny interactions that I wouldn't normally have otherwise because we see each other in a classroom. And I thought, well, this is nice. I'm getting to, to know my students in, um, in a different way and getting to know who they are as people. And I'm really enjoying that. 
but it's still on me to realize what's appropriate and, mm-hmm. you know, and what's not. And, um, you know, I, I do think it is, it is on me to be sensitive of, um, the fact that no matter what, these are my students, they're not my friends. And, you know, I have to be aware of boundaries and, um, you know, they're younger than me. So there's an age difference. Um, they're less powerful than me just because of the position that they're in. I'm grading them. And, um, and I'm, I think maybe I'm painfully aware of that power, um, because I'm a feminist because of what happened. And I, I wish that, um, other people or all people were as aware as I think a lot of women are, um, of, of their own power when they have it. And do you think we're able to teach that sense of self-responsibility to powerful men or other teachers, or do we just have to wait until the next generation? Oh, that would be depressing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I think, I think we're in the process of trying to have those conversations. And I think, I think they're so tricky. Um, I did think a lot when I was working on my memoir and because of all of the work I've done on this topic, I've been writing and studying and researching and talking to college students about sex and consent for like 15 years now. And, um, you know, I, in general, I feel like I have a pretty hopeful perspective on, especially after all the college students I've met, like, I feel like, you know, most people are not monsters, you know, like even if, um, they have grown up in a world full of toxic masculinity. Like if you give them a little bit of awareness they're they care. And that feels encouraging to me. So even if the glass is half full, it's still half full, Mm -hmm. you know, like we have something to work with. And, um, but I spent a lot of time thinking when I was writing the memoir about how, if I was going to be honest, I believe that there are some people who just can't be taught and, you know, and I, I felt like that's what I experienced in graduate school. I had the misfortune of encountering someone who no matter what I said or how desperate I got, um, he just refused to see what was right in front of him. Like he only was willing to see the fantasy that he wanted to project onto me. And, there was just a point where I realized I was helpless in the face of that. And I think, I think there are people like that, unfortunately. And I don't know if education, um, can fix that because ultimately that man spent at least a year, um, where I had gotten to the point where I was like, no, 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 no. And he still, didn't let up. And, um, you know, he was really willing to destroy my life. And so I don't know what you do with people like that. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like we all, or many of us have an experience where we felt like we were helpless in that situation Mm -hmm. and that there was nothing that we could do. And then that there would be no accountability at any point in time for these people. And I feel like we still are in a place where we're not seeing accountability. I think that one of the most frustrating parts of your story was just seeing how you tried to 
you tried all of the right things to right. make it better, to to report what happened and that, that he was never held responsible, mm-hmm. just as I don't think m- most people who commit these kinds of acts are. Yeah, at least Harvey Weinstein's going to jail for 23 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. We were just talking about that right before we <laughs> right. called you. We were like, but it still is like, is that enough? Like he didn't get and all he's the high profile, I know. right? So what I do know. everyday the- women do? And wealthy, powerful yeah. white women who yeah, exactly. were the ones who were, were the able accusers. to speak. You know, they had resources. They had more opportunities than many people do. I feel like even and they still didn't get their full justice. justice. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You know, I was, um, I went to this wonderful symposium a few weeks ago before we all could have to stop flying um, <laughs> at Tulane University. Hmm. And they had a, a symposium on um, sexual violence and sexual harassment. And so uh, they had all these, they had, I think it was like seven of us, like seven speakers. And, um, they had had me come speak based on my memoir and they had a person, uh, a faculty member at Tulane who were interviewing each of the different speakers. And so, um, so this, uh, person was interviewing me about my memoir and some of the previous speakers, there was a lot of conversation about restorative justice and it was really interesting. And so I sat there the whole morning before it was my turn thinking, would I have wanted to go through, would I have wanted to go through restorative justice, um, for my situation? And I have to say, um, like filing a title nine complaint, which I did a million years ago, um, when this was happening to me, it was like one of the worst things I ever did in my life. It was like one of the worst things I ever went through, um, that experience of filing that complaint and then dealing with the university process, which was so, it was, it was almost as destructive, if not more so to me than, um, the experience of being stalked and harassed by my professor for so long. And so I sat there thinking like, would I have wanted, would I have wanted that? Like, and I think maybe at the time I wasn't ready to, I wouldn't have been ready to do it. But I've also, it's been, I don't know how many years now, well over 20 years um, since this happened to me. And, you know, I never received an apology from him or from my university. And that has been so corrosive (laughs) in my life and my psyche. And in some ways, um, so much of my memoir is about just the ongoing doubt and shame I still feel about something someone else did to me. <laughs> and, but I, I can't seem to shake it. And, you know, I, I know, um, even though I can sort of step outside of myself and, you know, be a feminist and, you know, and to myself and be like, Donna, like you didn't do anything wrong. And I can give myself the talk, like the pep talk about why I shouldn't feel shame or doubt. Um, I still have it. And, I think there's something about not ever having someone, you know, like my university or like this person say, I'm so sorry for what I did or what we did to you. That is really contributes to that. The fact that I can't shake that doubt and shame. And then just one other thing um, that has been, so if I, if I sort of set that aside for a minute, one of the things I didn't know was going to happen when the memoir came out 
was how many people were going to write to me and say they were sorry for what happened. And so, you know, I've never gotten that sorry from this person or from a university, but there's been something extraordinary about all of these people who have read my story and then they've said, I'm so sorry. And there's a way in which that's that apology I've been waiting for. It's never going to come from the place that it should come, but it's come from so many other people. And that's felt kind of miraculous. I know that sounds cheesy, but it's also true. Yeah. I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. And just knowing that like being believed by so, I think that I don't know if that's a piece of it is that these people are just validating mm-hmm. your experience, like that this happened, acknowledging that this happened to you and saying that it's wrong when you tell yourself, when you're constantly questioning yourself. Well, it is, it is like that. And so I'm like, well, cause I still, even with the memoir out, like even, and, you know, finally really, um, talking to people who are close to me about what happened because people like my best friends, like, unless you were there when this was happening, like at the time, unless you like witnessed it. Um, and when I finally came forward, like my friends at that time saw what had happened, but otherwise I just didn't tell anyone or, and my closest friends now in my life, it's like, they, they knew something had happened and they knew maybe the gist of it, but they had no idea how extensive it was and how life-changing it was. And so now, you know, all of these people, close to me have, have read the memoir. And so they've been talking to me about it. And, um, so suddenly it's out in the open. And one of the things that I'm always dealing with in my head is I'm always like, did I, did I just make a big deal out of nothing? Like I'll, I'll have that like narrative in my head. And so when people read the memoir and they're so outraged on my behalf, like when I hear that, I'm like, Oh, so, so you thought it was bad too. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Like there's a way in which it helps me sort of tell myself, okay, you're not crazy, Donna. Like that was a ridiculous situation. Like people are angry that this happened to you and it's okay that like you had a hard time. And so that's been really, um, that's been really helpful to me. Yeah, I love that in the book when you're you say you're going to therapy that you use the and statements and that's something I've struggled with. Like it's it's but you know like I was a victim and I and I I still blame myself, but it's or <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it again. Like it's so hard to get out of that out of that way of thinking. Um, but I just I really resonated with that with me and it just it kind of helped me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, sometimes I feel like such a failed feminist, you know, like I'm supposed to be, uh, like I'm supposed to be stronger or I'm supposed to be like, get beyond my doubt and my shame. Like what kind of feminist am I really? Like if I like, if I'm so um, hard on myself or if I still feel like such a victim sometimes, and then, you know, I have to be like, okay, you know, I, I am a victim. I'm a victim and I'm a survivor and I am a feminist and I am strong and I'm also still really vulnerable and struggle (laughs) sometimes with all of these things that I know, um, are rational, like that I should believe, but at the same time, I still, you know, have all these, um, difficulties, you know, actually believing the things that I, my, my rational mind thinks is true. 
So do you, do you think I've been just marinating on the self-blame? Because I think one of the things that is just the most vulnerable part of your book is that you acknowledge these feelings that I think everybody goes through, but sometimes I haven't expressed them out loud when I talk about things that have happened to me because I'm worried about being less believed or less validated by acknowledging those feelings that I have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also wondered what purpose those feelings serve. And I'm curious if you think that control plays any part of that, like the idea that if you could have taken a different step or if you could have seen this earlier or known uh, known that this person was going to be like this, then you could have had control over the outcome. Do you think that those things are related in any way? Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, just our ability to analyze and reanalyze in hindsight all the different moves we made or didn't, I think, can be so paralyzing and can cause us to have so much shame and self-blame. And, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, all the things I did, like all the things I did, but of course, and then I try to remind myself like with this, this professor, I try to remind myself that like, I did stuff like that with all my professors and none of them did what this man did. (laughs) Right. (laughs) None of them did that. Like, so this, like, what, so why, why didn't it happen with them? Like, what was wrong with what I did? Like, obviously nothing, like something was wrong with him. So I can take myself through that narrative. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I was really careful about when I was writing the story of it was I, I was, I really wanted to look at every step of the way and, to lay bare the fact that like I participated in this in the beginning, like I was in it, you know, like I wanted, I admired this person. I sought out his attention in the beginning. I was excited to, um, that he had taken an interest in me because I, I really wanted to figure out, um, when, when did that change? Like, how did it change? And then also what was my part in it? I guess, um, because I also felt like I needed to see what it was. It was like my chance to to just lay lay it all out there. And I just decided that, um, like, this is the truth of the story. Like, so I, I think one of the things that bothers me often when we're talking about these situations, um, about consent, or we just sort of jump to, like, you did, like, like this was not your fault, And that may indeed be true, except it leaves out the part about how, what does it mean that we're all in these relationships that suddenly, you know, go bad? (laughs) Like, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that, because the self-blame and the shame is on the, on the side of the part that we see as the part that we wanted, because there are, like, I did want something out of that relationship in the beginning until I didn't anymore. And so I sort of, I wanted to just put it all out there on paper so I could look at it and so I could let other people look at it. And I sort of just decided like, okay, um, someone asked me really early on after I'd written the memoir who had read it. Um, he asked me, are you scared to have this come out? And I said, no. And it was the first time someone had asked me that. And I was like, no. And then I said, um, because, you know, no, no one could judge me as hard as I've judged myself. 
And I think that that's true. Like I realized when I said that, like, that's true. Like I feel really unafraid of people judging me. And I think for me, it felt good to just lay it all out there and not, not just pretend to myself, like I did nothing. I love that. In, in terms of actually releasing the book, in the beginning, you allude to the fact that you signed what I assume is... A non-disclosure, yeah. Yeah, some sort of non-disclosure agreement. How did you get away with writing the book? Mm-hmm. And has there been any fallout since? And if we're somebody who feels like telling our stories and maybe some of our listeners have signed such agreements... Um, is there anything that we can do about that? Because I, and I really love this quote, you said there, there are file cabinets full of the bloody tongues of women. And that, that one really resonated with me too, because I just can't imagine how many other people are in the same position. Everyone keeps asking me how I got around my (laughs) non-disclosure. And, um, the truth is I, I didn't, I mean, I, I just, there was nothing that was going to stop me from writing that memoir (laughs) once I started it. And it wasn't until I was like maybe two thirds of the way through where I was just like, oh, this is happening. Like I'm doing this, (laughs) like I'm doing this. And, and that was, I was almost done with it when the Harvey Weinstein situation came out. And so I even, I hadn't told anybody I was working on it except my husband and, um, like maybe a couple of friends and, I like called up my agent and I was like, Oh yeah. So I you know, wrote this memoir and she was like, you did. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of a me too memoir. And she was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I was like, it's pretty much done. And, um, so that was a coincidence. And I, I sort of knew once the, everything was happening that October, like, Oh, like this could get published. <laughs> like this could be in the, because this is, this is happening right now. And, um, but it never occurred to me once not to publish it. Um, I just, it, there was just no way that I was going to be silent about it anymore. Once I sort of got going and it all spilled out, it really, I wrote the memoir very fast and I thought a lot about, um, how, I mean, they, these feel criminal to me. Like, I, after I finished the book, um, it wasn't until after I sold it actually that I went into my file cabinet and I pulled out my, um, my file on everything that had happened. And I, I went and I found my, my, the legal document that I signed and it, it not only says that, um, so in it, there are clauses that say that, we agree that me and the university agree that none of this, that no one did anything wrong. Um, so neither party did anything wrong as if I might've done something wrong. <laughs> uh, and, um, and also that, uh, so that we'll, yeah, so it, no one did anything wrong. Um, and we'll never speak of this again. <laughs> so I essentially agreed that I, I signed a document that said that really this never happened to me. And, that is so criminal. I was so young and I was so desperate. And I just think about all those things. And I just think shame on that university mm-hmm. for, um, for doing that to me. Um, an institution of education, like where I was literally learning about how voice was so important to feminists, literally in the building next door to the one where I signed this document. And, um, 
And I, I just sort of decided they paid me so little money. <laughs> it's hilarious how little they paid me, um, for that amount of cost that it, it, um, the price it, um, took on my life and my future and my career. And so I just decided, you know what, if they come after me, like come, cause you know what, I, I, I got a laptop and I can write an op-ed yeah. <laughs> so, as soon as you come after me, I'm going to come after you in a direct way. And, um, one of the things that when I wrote the memoir, like you all know this cause you've read it, but I don't use the person's name mm-hmm. and I don't mm-hmm. mention my graduate institution and the graduate institution is easy to find out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't. <laughs> I'm not going to say it, but yeah, it is easy to figure it out. <laughs> um, but it would be, I think, hard for someone to identify this person unless you were there at the time mm-hmm. and um, you knew this person. And um, I think, and, you know, I, I think that that helps a little bit in terms of the non-disclosure agreement, but that's not why I didn't use his name right. or the reason why I didn't use his name is because, um, this is my story. It's not his. And the second his name is associated with me, it's going to cover me up for the rest of my life. Like I I wanted him to stop following me back then and I refused to allow him to follow me into my future. Mm-hmm. And I do not want my name to be associated with him ever, ever again. And so that is why his name is not in the book. Well, I think that's so encouraging. So just do it and ask for <laughs> forgiveness later. Like, fuck it. If yeah. you have a story that you feel like you need to tell, yeah, go ahead. I, uh, I recently just tried to, I, I filed a complaint through the EEOC, um, and I recently went back. So my, my case ended in them offering me a non-disclosure agreement and a thousand dollars. But they said that if I took the money that I would, you know, that I would sign this. And I was like a thousand, what am I going to do with this? It's not Mm -hmm. even helpful. So I, so I just, I didn't sign it. And they told me that the information would still be available should future cases come up against my harasser. Well, I just found out through this process, after reading your book, I started tracking, trying to track down my old case files and just anything that I have related to it because it was so long ago and I kind of blocked it out. And I found out that they destroyed my entire file and that none of it exists anymore and that the EEOC destroys files after six years. Mm -hmm. And so, (gasps) like... I didn't sign the non-disclosure and I still didn't. Yeah. There's still no justice on that end. Yeah. And if another woman comes forward. Yeah. And then the lady, I have it recorded. The lady at the EOC just like yelled at me on the phone for asking for this information. Wow. Yeah. It's, I, I really hope these um, non-disclosure agreements become illegal. There's been discussion about that because it is so criminal. Like you are essentially, you are locking up um, the information itself from other people, you know, you know, who may have a pattern. Uh, yeah. For, be victims of the same person. So you're, you're protecting criminal behavior. You're hiding. It's a cover up. Like you're covering up criminal, mm-hmm. criminal behavior. And then you're silencing someone, you know, for the rest of their lives in, in theory. And it's when I, when I think about that now from a distance, 
I just think how insane it is that people have been signing these for years, that this is the situation they've been in where they've been forced to sign them. And I think about how literally if I hadn't signed that agreement, like, like I would have still been subject to this man for the rest of my, you know, my graduate experience. And, uh, you know, I just like, I would have had to take classes from him. Mm-hmm. And I just think about how crazy a position I was in and, and that this, this was my way out in theory. And it wasn't even a way out. It was just like a, a way a, through. A yeah. yeah. And, um, wow. That's amazing that you didn't sign your non-disclosure agreement. Well, I mean, again, it, it just wasn't going to benefit me. I had already quit the job. Like it, it, there was no reason. And then I was, I was like, well, if nothing's going to happen to him, I at least want this on file. And then to have just now found out, okay, well that doesn't exist anymore. So this guy can be out here doing the same stuff over and over again with no trail, you know, mm. no. Um, and I, yeah, because I question a lot today just in general. And your, your story happened. I mean, mine was 2007, which is still a very different time than we're in now. I feel like with me too, changing everything, but I, part of me still wonders, like if a woman were in the same situation that you were in or the same situation that I was in today, would the outcome look any different? And I think that that's the part that's upsetting to me. I, I mean, I don't know. I have to say, I, I have been thinking nonstop since I went to Tulane about restorative justice. Um, it's such a verboten thing to bring up on college campuses. Like it's something I've always been interested in that I haven't known too much about, but have wondered about, um, just because, you know, I, I, Title Nine, or you know, the court system, I think is is just the nuclear option for all of us. Like it's, you know, I don't really know anyone, um, any college students who have had a good experience, you know, vital, filing a Title Nine complaint. Like it's so destructive to um, the person who has to deal with it, like the person who's filing the complaint. And it's destructive to their lives and their futures. And, you know, as is, you know, the court systems, you know, are, are such a disaster for, for these things. Um, if you can even get it in, into a court mm-hmm. system. Well, yes. Like that, even if, if, if you can get anybody to take you seriously. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that really bothers me is, um, so you, you know, you're in this, you're a victim of something and, um, you, you face this choice, right? Right now, this is the way we have things set up where you, you basically, you either like take the nuclear route or, um, you stay silent for the rest of your life. (laughs) And, you know, I want there to be options for, um, for victims. And I, I know part of why people worry so much about restorative justice justice is because they worry about, um, victims being pushed into that kind of a situation as a way of letting, um, perpetrators off the hook. And that I, I, I don't want that to be, um, you know, why we would use that as an option, but the way I have been thinking about it for a while now, but even in relation to myself, but, um, but I, I really want there to be an opportunity for victims to have choices about what they might want to do and choices that involve 
potentially um, sitting down and having a conversation with this person if they are ready, if they feel like they can, you know, do that and saying like, you hurt me, <laughs> like, and making them listen to it and like making them hear it, having that facilitated conversation. Because I, I do think that, um, women, cause most victims are women, but like really have suffered, uh, in that silence and isolation from not being able to, to express themselves in the face of someone who has, has hurt them, um, on many different levels, uh, and just expressing that and, and ideally hearing that person say, I'm sorry. And so, I don't know, I've, I've just been thinking so much about and wishing that, um, that that would be a more viable option for people because I do think losing your voice is the most toxic thing that can happen to you. And I don't want that for all these wonderful young women and young people that I meet on college campuses who are struggling. Right. But when you see the people who you, I mean, that's what's so brave about your book, but when you see the people who do use their voices, like you said, it was almost, in your case, it, it sounds like it was almost just as traumatizing, the response. Right. The people around you who you think are there to protect you and help you, especially Tootsie, really. <laughs> she got me. <laughs> oh. is, it, is it more like violating that a woman is someone who doesn't believe you? Because you automatically think being a woman... Like mm -hmm. she's, she's going to mother you. She's going to protect you. Or she may have had an experience that she could relate to. Right. Or maybe she's even told you that and then just totally destroys you. I think, um, like I really, when I first went to see her, Tootsie, who I, the person I call Tootsie in the book, who was the human resources person who was in charge of responding to the kind of complaint that I was levying against, this professor at my university, um, she was so nice to me and she made it seem like everything was going to stop and everything was going to get taken care of and I was going to be fine. And I just remember thinking, oh, oh like this is going to be okay. Like it was mm -hmm. so hard to go to her. I was so terrified to go to her. And then she, she seemed so nice. And so that made, um, her betrayal of me uh, or the fact that she'd been lying to me the whole time, every time I went to go see her to ask for help, just, even worse than the professor almost because yeah. I, cause she had the power to do something and it really like, it took me forever to realize. And then I felt so duped that she was not going to have, like she, she actually saw me as the problem. Like I was the one who was the threat, not this professor. And I just felt, I felt so unbelievably dumb and, and helpless. And also you know, helpless in the face of this institution that I had put all my trust in. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be a professor. Like I idealized and idolized the university. And here was a university who was treating me like a pariah. And, you know, when I hadn't done anything other than just be a student and, um, it was, it was really, really traumatizing. I, I think about her still, I can picture her like she's in front of me. And, um, sometimes I wonder if she ever remembers what she did or if she even realizes what she did. I don't know. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of our interview with Donna. Shout out to Bombay Gasoline for our theme music. 
And if you have a bunch of free time lately, like we do, you can download (laughs) Donna's book, Consent, A Memoir of Unwanted Attention on Audible or Amazon, and you can find the link in our show notes. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast pleasure. See you next week. Bye. Words mean something Even